Hey, this is Carl. Uh, we're still in vacation mode here. Carrie's getting her stuff together. I'm getting Keto Fest together and working on my bazoodle machine. So, in the meantime, please enjoy this second half of a rebroadcast from 2018 with Zoe Harcomb. Zoe Rocks Again, Part 2. Welcome back to Two Keto Dudes. This is Carl Franklin from Connecticut in the United States. And in February 2016, I put myself on a ketogenic diet to take control of my metabolism. In just two and a half months, I managed to reverse all my markers of type 2 diabetes with diet alone. As of now, I'm 80 pounds lighter with no signs of diabetes or heart disease. Hi, I'm Richard Morris in Canberra, Australia. I've been on a ketogenic diet since April of 2014. When I started, I was very sick with complications from type 2 diabetes. Within six months of starting a ketogenic diet, all of my biomarkers of disease had disappeared. I've lost about 100 pounds and I've completely turned my health around. And this show is a document of my progress through ketosis and Richard's experience thriving for years in ketosis. Thriving! <laughs> <laughs> and hopefully that might help a few people who are curious about this kind of dietary hacking. Yeah, we're not doctors. We don't want to give anyone any medical advice, but we are keen to share our own experiences. We're actually both software developers, so we're not afraid of a little technical detail, are we, Carl? No, 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 no. <laughs> We've done some research into our own deranged metabolisms and the science behind them. We hope to share some of that research. Where possible, we intend to put links to the show notes to cite research supporting any claims that we make. You'll probably work out pretty quickly that we're both foodies. We sure we are. We love to cook and we love to eat. Mm -hmm. In every episode, we both share a keto recipe that, you know, can't be ignored. Cannot be ignored. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So let's start podcast number 102. Zoe Rocks, Part 2. You say little. So, Richard, do we have any apologies or corrections from last week's show? Uh, that was uh, Zoe Rocks, Part the 1. <laughs> no, I think <laughs> Zoe did a really good job. Um, yeah. Actually, we do have one errata point. Uh, yeah. This was some, something where you and I stuffed up. Yep, we did. Uh Zoe didn't make any mistakes, but we really screwed the pooch. <laughs> <laughs> so, so basically what happened was we have a segment in our podcast called Mail. You've probably heard of it, where we read out mail from our contributors. And I read a story out from the ketogenic forums from a gentleman named Bob Johnson who gave us a wonderful review of his experience with the VA and thanked us for the show. And so, you know, that was a, a great story to show on mail. And then Carl read out an iTunes review from a guy who had a very similar story. And, of course, afterwards we I said, oh, we were fascinated that we, the we stories were, were so similar. Yeah. See how <laughs> many times we hear the same information? It you was know, the same guy. All over the place. It's the same guy. <laughs> <laughs> he, he got in touch with us afterwards and said, Dudes, I need to get a lottery ticket because <laughs> you called me out twice in the same show. So that's our errata. Um, yeah, we'll try and choose that. two different people next time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So let's revisit what a ketogenic diet is. It's any diet where you're burning fat for fuel and a byproduct of that fat burning is ketone bodies. These ketone bodies provide fuel for mm -hmm. your brain and for your muscles and for all sorts of things. So yeah. we're powered by fat. Now, to get into ketosis, one sure way to mm -hmm. do it is 
to eat less than 20 grams of carbohydrates per day. Yeah, no sugar, no starch. No sugar, no starch. And replace all that sugar and starch with fat. Yeah. The protein should be about the same, which is moderate. Mm-hmm. We should eat moderate amounts of protein. And uh, for us, that's one to one and a half grams of protein per every kilogram of lean body mass we have. Yep. That's it. That's it. That's a ketogenic diet. That's a ketogenic diet right there. Bacon and eggs. (laughs) Mm, Bacon and eggs. Uh, Yeah. So, uh, Richard, how was your week? Uh, Yeah, it was pretty good. Uh, I'm still seeing ketones out the wazoo. Uh, My ketones this morning were uh, 1.8, which is just outrageous for me. Normally, my physiological range, as everybody probably knows, is you know 0.2 to 0.8. Mm. Um, I rarely go over that unless I go to altitude, like going up to Breckenridge, or unless I really, really push my body hard. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, I'm, I and I, I suspect there's a couple of things that probably changed. One of the things uh, I had a dental implant done this week, and so in advance of that, I wanted to get, I wanted to be really good at making collagen because. Uh, I had the tooth extraction was done in December, and then the bone of my jaw needed to to set and become strong enough to be able to hold this titanium implant. Hmm. And so, bone is made up of uh, of protein and minerals. It's mineral, you know. Uh, the protein is predominantly collagen, and uh, so I wanted to be really good at making collagen. So I've been eating a lot of collagen uh, in the form of uh, pork belly, um, which is uh, skin has a lot of collagen, bone right. has a lot of collagen, so I've been eating a lot of bone broth as well. Uh, but lately, over the past probably four weeks, three or four weeks, I've been supplementing with a, um amino acid called glycine, which comprises 30% of collagen. The protein collagen is made up of a whole bunch of amino acids. Yeah, you talked about this last week. Yeah, so I've been supplementing with this glycine. I've been using it uh, in my coffee as a sweetener because it's slightly sweet. Mm. And that happened about the same time as my ketones started rising. So that's that's probably the most likely uh, candidate. And I don't really n- understand the biochemistry of why that would be, but I'm mm. looking into it. That's but a couple of other things that I've changed as well. I did increase my, my metformin a couple of months ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, um, I did start adding creatine about, uh, three or four months ago as well. So these are things that, that might be a change, but I, the, 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 the change that happened about the same time as the ketones all started improving mm. was this, uh, glycine. So that, that's the most likely candidate. Um, and I've been losing a lot of weight, uh, since then as well. And, uh, Part of the reason for that is probably likely uh, because my insulin is lower. Now, I did a blood test. I mentioned last week I was doing a blood test and I got the results back. All right. And my fasting insulin is three uh, milli IU per liter lower than it was last time. So, that is so awesome. my insulin is definitely coming down. And so that's likely the mechanism. Why glycine is affecting my insulin, I don't know, but uh, hmm. that's likely what's that's likely part of the process. So that, that was kind of my week. And the other thing is, I'm in the process of buying a house. We saw a house um, uh, this weekend that uh, we think we're going to make an offer on. So uh, oh, that's all very exciting. Yeah, that's great. So You've that's had my a great week. week. 
Yeah, it's a good week. So, and, uh, but I've also been on. I've also been on um, hillbilly heroin <laughs> for, for this yeah. dental implant, <laughs> yeah. which is uh, opiates to uh, to do, because I, you know I've had this titanium screw put into into my upper jaw up around my first molar. So, mm-hmm. uh, uh, so that'd be a little bit of pain. But other than that, it's been a good week. How was your week, huh? My week was great. Uh, I got a new chin strap for use with my CPAP machine. And uh, mm. I have sleep apnea. I've had it for a long time, actually, uh, since about 2002, I think. Uh, but now wow. uh, this chin straps never worked for me because they were always mm-hmm. the ones that sort of attach to the straps on the mask with Velcro. And they'd always mm-hmm. come off. But this one yeah. is just one piece and it fits over your head and just mm. holds your mouth shut. It's made by a company called Rashify, R-A-S-C-H-I-F-Y, and I got it on Amazon. So, uh, for anybody who has uh, apnea and can't wear a chin strap for the same reason and you want to, I'm just going to put the link out there. But I I love it. I've been getting more sleep. I've been sleeping better. Um, Don't wake up with a dry mouth or anything like that. So, yeah. I like and it. we're not being paid by Rashify to advertise their products. So, no, uh, it's just, you know. Rashif- Rashify, if you're listening to this podcast, yeah, that's right. get in touch with us. <laughs> sure. Well, uh, you know, the thing is, is that every once in a while I just come across something that is so simple and so effective. Mm. And it just speaks to good design, right? I mean, yeah. this is just a piece that's of true. cloth with yeah. some holes for your ears. And it just goes over your head <laughs> and holds your mouth shut. It's not that hard. Oh, that's awesome. So, what does a CPAP do? So, a CPAP um, forces air down your throat to keep your air pathways open so it stops you from snoring and it also prevents uh, you from stopping breathing, which is what apnea does. And apnea is very dangerous if you don't get it treated. If you're waking up in in the morning and you feel like you're not getting any rest and you feel like you're out of breath, maybe a little dizzy, um, tired, lethargic. That's because your muscles and your blood, uh, there's not enough oxygen in there. And it's because you're stopping breathing. When I did my sleep test, I had stopped breathing for 30, 40 seconds at a time. Mm. You don't get any sleep because your your autonomic system sort of kicks in and wakes you up. And enough so that you can breathe again. You know, your brain's like, hey, you gotta breathe. Yeah, wake up, buddy. <laughs> yeah, and so the end result is you just don't get any good sleep, and also raises right. your blood pressure. And you know the the doctor when I was first diagnosed said, "I'll be honest with you. You know, if you don't treat this one way or another, you're going to die an early death, and it's not going to be fun." Right. Yeah. So wow, that's that is fascinating. Yeah. That's it. It was a great week. I'm getting a lot of sleep. Finally able to sleep on my back and uh, having a, a a good time. Hmm. That's it. Mm. So I feel like giving away a mug. Yeah. So who we got? We got a winner? Yeah. Let's give away a mug to uh, a randomly chosen member of the Two Keto Dudes fan club. Um, And if you don't know what that is, go to fanclub.twoketo.com and answer a few questions and then join. And every show we like to give away stuff. And uh, right now we're on a mug kick. We're giving away Keep Calm and Keto (laughs) on mugs with our mugs on them. So today's winner is Jim O'Brien. Well done, Jim. Well done. <laughs> Way to get picked at random, Jim. <laughs> yeah. And if you don't want to wait to win a mug, you can always buy one at gear.2kido.com and pick yourself up a onesie or a t-shirt while you're at it. <laughs> Absolutely. 
And that brings us to a little segment we call... <laughs> oh, we're getting good at that. We're yeah. pros at the mail. Oh, we are. Yeah. <laughs> well, we weren't last week. Let's no, try no, no. and do better this week. Yeah, we'll, we're going to up our game, kids. Here we are. So I've got one from Francis on Facebook, and Francis says, After being diagnosed with stage 1 lymphoma, I discovered the ketogenic diet. My doctor has taken a watch and wait approach, and but he has supported my diet experiment. It's been a year, and the tumour has actually shrunk a bit. I'm 63 and 5 foot 2, and I went from 133 pounds to 108 really quickly. Uh, because I'm uh, on my diet, my husband is as well, but he's not as strict as I am. He f- went from 183 to 170. Uh, and he was able to get off his blood pressure meds, but anyway, he recently flunked his stress test. He had an angiogram, and then he was told that he needed a quadruple bypass. Wow. We were in shock. Anyway, he had it on Thursday, and he's doing really well. The surgeon put him on a diabetic diet, not because of his blood sugar. It was only 84 when he got here for surgery, which is not too bad. Yeah. Um, he, she, said, she goes on and says he p- was put on the diabetic diet because the doctor said that sugar feeds infection. And I was stunned and pleased. (laughs) However, I'm really shocked at their idea of a diabetic diet. For example, there is a drink that they give them called Diabetes Shield, which is a nutritional drink that contains 30 grams of carbohydrates and, of course, no fat. Oh, come on. Um, Yeah, his meals always included bread and potatoes, rice, grits and pancakes. What? Uh, They did give him a sugar-free syrup and sugar-free jello and sweet and low for sweetener. Look, I can't wait to get him home and back onto real food and keto. (laughs) People just don't understand what what sugar is. They don't get it. it, Yeah, they don't get the fact that that, uh, starch is just a a structure full of sugars. (laughs) It doesn't taste sweet, therefore it must be okay, yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, they're, they're feeding him lots of sugar in the pancakes and the grits, potato, bread, rice. And I've run into this experience with, with hospital dietitians before. Uh, Julie had a surgery done uh, a couple of years ago. We, we'd just been keto maybe for six months or so. Yeah. And she had a surgery done on a sinuses. And uh, we chose uh, hospitals based on the fact that they were willing to do a ketogenic diet. So, so we have private health cover. We can choose any hospital, any doctor right. uh, that we want in, in the region. We could have gone to Sydney if we wanted to. But we interviewed all of the hospitals in Canberra, yeah. and at every interview we said, can you do a ketogenic diet for the patient? And and one of the hospitals, it was one of the Catholic hospitals, said, yep, we can absolutely do a ketogenic diet. It's not a problem. We have a hospital dietitian on standby Great. who uh, is capable of doing that. And so we said, fine, we'll, we'll go with you guys. Um, and because she had private health care, she had like a five-day recovery in hospital. Um, we knew that she'd be totally keto for the whole thing. And so we, we're all happy, right? So yeah. anyway, she has, the, she has the operation and we, t- we told the anesthetist that, um, that she's been ketogenic for, for six months. And so, uh, she was glucose sparing. And so if he was to push glucose during the procedure, he needed to be aware of that because her body, uh, di- the dynamics of how she uses energy was slightly different from regular people. So okay. he needed to be aware of that. Yep. But, um, so, so the, the, the procedure went perfectly fine. And uh, I went to go up to see her after the operation. Uh, uh, she was already post-op and she was in the room and they wouldn't let me in. 
And I said, why won't you let, let me in? And they said, because she's not eating her food. She's refusing to eat her food. Wow. I said, what food are you giving her? And they said, well, this is the standard post-surgery recovery that every patient has to have, which is orange juice and uh, a sandwich. And she had a, a, a male nurse standing over her, insisting that she eat before she was allowed any visitors. That is insane. And so I, so I, I remained entirely calm. I kept calm and I ketoed on. I said, can I speak to the dietitian? <laughs> and uh, they said, uh, sure, and down on the third floor. So uh, I went down two floors to the dietitian and I said, uh, tell me about this patient. You've got, you know, what, what diet are you giving her? She said, nothing, a standard diet. I said, well, we requested the ketogenic diet. And the dietitian says, I refuse to put anyone on a ketogenic diet unless they're an epileptic child under uh, instructions for a ketogenic diet from their doctor. Wow. I said to her, we chose this hospital based on the fact that admission said that they would be willing to do a ketogenic diet. And she said, right. no, I'm the final arbiter on that. And no, I'm not going to put on a ketogenic diet until a, until a doctor tells me that I, that I have to. So <laughs> anyway, she had to eat the orange, drink the orange juice and, and eat the white bread uh, sandwich. Uh, and the food that they gave her, the, the meals were absolutely horrid. There was this starchy gravy that was on all of the meats, which was just you know, it was just corn flour and water and, and a little bit of stock. And the, the meat the meat was the cheapest possible meat. It was lean, but it was it was um it was grey. It That's was just terrible. buggery. The vegetables, none of the vegetables had any fat on them at all. No no butter. Um you were able to get margarine, uh you were able <laughs> to get low fat yogurt, uh there was skim milk. And also, uh, it, she was able to get sugar-free Jello was an option, uh, but it, but it included fruit. So oh sugar-free Jello with fruit is kind of <laughs> kind of pointless, really. So it's fruit embedded in the jelly. Yeah. So um, so I I ended up smuggling uh, smuggling a couple of brie and a salami for her. That's great. <laughs> she had five days of recovery there. She lasted two days before she said, "Get me the hell out of this crazy joint." <laughs> So, uh, Francis, look, I, I really feel for you. Hospital diets are horrible and, yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> we, ne we need to change that. Yeah. Well, good story, Richard. Even yeah, though so it your was uh, a little it, sad. It but <laughs> Sorry. It made me angry. Now I'm all angry. Uh, so I have a another podcast review from Apple Podcast Reviews. Um, what from we Francis? used to call iTunes. <laughs> it's not Francis. Good. No, it's not. This one is from Denise Langler. And she says, a few years ago, a doctor recommended that my husband and I try a keto diet. So, see, there are see? doctors out there. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm all worked up now. We had yeah. our doubts about how this would work for us as we both compete in Ironman triathlons. Wow. We were very pleasantly surprised. Although we train mm. every day, we started to lose weight and it just kept coming off. We're both in our 60s and had the normal aches and pains around our joints that you accept with aging, all aches and pains disappeared. Right. We were able to do some very long training sessions and back it up day after day after day without needing a rest and had endless amounts of energy during training. But one of the most amazing things we discovered was that we were able to complete our Ironman race using only water. Our whole race, which is usually 13 to 15 hours, was fueled on body fat. Other competitors were relying on carb sugary gels and drinks for energy, 
continually throughout the race. We needed nothing other than water. We took some time off racing and slid backwards a bit, consuming some carbs. The aches and pains returned, and we don't feel anywhere near as fit and healthy as when we stuck to the keto diet. People would always ask us, what do you eat? And thought it would be very difficult to maintain. Um, but like anything that's worth doing, it becomes part of your lifestyle, and the results speak for themselves. Back to keto we go. Nice. How cool is that? That's awesome. There's a triathlete couple living up in Caloundra in Australia who've gone keto and listens to the show. Uh, that might be might them. Be they are from Australia. Well, Ironman is a common term in Australia. I know there's the Hawaiian Ironman, which is this big event mm -hmm. uh, in America, but we have Ironman uh, races sort of like every weekend here, so it's, it's, yeah, it's yeah. a more common thing. But uh, we should have her on the show sometime uh, to talk about that because that is a fascinating story. Great story. All right, and that brings us to our interview, part two with Zoe Harcombe, which was recorded at her home in Cardiff, Wales. Mm -hmm. And uh, we had a very nice time, very nice chat last week. We continue it this week, and let's just roll that recording now. You for a little? So we're back for part two of our, our talk with Zoe Harcombe. Uh, I am actually in Zoe's house in Wales and with her husband, Andy, who picked me up at the train station and uh, her pets, uh, which you may have heard in the uh, <laughs> last one, uh, uh, the, the dog has a uh, little moaning. Oh, I love her. She's growing. having chemo at the moment. We discovered lymphoma uh, in August of last year. And yeah. um, Lovely she was dog, though. Really healthy. So, you know, the vet said chemo for pets is very different to chemo for humans i think mm. chemo for humans yeah. is is trying to keep you alive as long as possible that's not the objective with pets it's to try and you know alleviate any discomfort and make your life as good as possible so we thought we would go for that and she's doing great but she does groan every now and again so apologies right. in advance <laughs> if you're wondering what that was <laughs> yeah um and she eats really well doesn't she yeah she's um i mean it's very interesting actually for anyone who has to take steroids for various conditions because she has steroid tablets with the chemo as humans do hmm. and um steroids tend to make you very hungry uh, they also tend to play havoc with your blood glucose levels. Um, a type right. 1, I know, um, has to take steroids for something at the moment and hasn't had to in the past. And he has found his blood glucose levels going up to crazy things like 25. Uh, prednisone is a, uh, a synthetic cortisol steroid, right? So that would raise your insulin levels and therefore your... Glucose. Yeah. Glucose. Yeah. yeah, there's definitely a, a direct <laughs> and immediate impact and a significant impact on blood glucose levels. Glucose, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, let's talk about the PURE study that came out last year. This was uh, something we talked about a little bit on Two Keto Dudes. We did. Yeah. But what was your take on it? Okay, so I often look at studies every week. I'll take a study from <laughs> a journal and take a look at the study. And as with any epidemiological study, you've got the usual problems of you can observe an association, but it doesn't necessarily mean that there's a causation. Um, you know, you might find that people eat pizza and wear red socks. It doesn't mean it, that, you know, eating pizza causes you to wear red socks or even wearing red socks causes you to eat pizza. One of my favorites, and I think the Freakonomics guys did this, they, they found all these crazy correlations that were obviously ridiculous, but one of them was um, eating ice cream causes more causes drowning. 
Yeah, because of course, they, well, actually, that's that's an, an interesting one because that's what we would call a confounder. Yeah. So the confounder, of course, is good weather. Right in summertime. So in the summertime, you'll <laughs> eat ice cream and you'll go swimming. That's right. But going swimming doesn't necessarily cause you to eat ice cream. Right. But <laughs> so hot you, weather causes both. So yeah. they claim, oh, you're more likely to drown if you eat ice cream. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, so it's quite funny actually. So it, so it had the usual sort of it's association, not causation. Right. I think one of the highest percentages that was claimed was that mortality was 28% lower during the study period in the higher fat intake mm. um, from memory. That was one of the findings. And to be able to move from association to causation, one of the best ways to see if this can be done is to look at the famous Bradford Hill criteria set out in the 1960s. They still hold you know, brilliantly today. And the first one um, is the simplest um, rule of thumb test. If you're not in the territory of double, right. it's unlikely that A causes B. Mm. Um, you know, when Bradford Hill was developing the criteria, he was looking at scrotal cancer in chimney sweeps. And chimney sweeps were something like 200 times more likely to develop scrotal cancer than people who were not chimney sweeps. Wow. Now, that's not, sure. you know, you don't then have to do a randomized control trial right. to say, is this causal? Mm. You can just straight away say, you've ticked the first criterion. And then there are another eight criterion that Bradford Hill developed to say, you know, if you tick all of those boxes, you, you've got a causal relationship. So it doesn't get off the ground in terms of causality. The percentage is that they were talking about just by observation or epidemiological studies was very low, right? It's very low and, and it, it's difficult to think of a, okay, I can just think of one. So most of the stuff that comes out of Harvard where you get the newspaper headlines of, you know, eat whole grains and you're 30% less likely to, you know, I don't know, have cancer or heart disease. Or I saw that in the London Times today. Oh, whatever. It's they, another you know, one. <laughs> eat high fiber to lose weight. Yeah. I mean, it's, 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 it's always causation rather than association because it is in the realms of, you know, 20%. 10% sometimes. It's mm. pathetic. Um, it's just so tiny. You know, you cannot jump to causation. You're nowhere near the Bradford Hill territory. The right. one I did see recently, which was an epidemiological study, they'd, um, this came out just at the end of last year. They'd looked at people who regularly take antacids and the association with stomach cancer. Mm. And in a particular group, and I can't remember exactly off the top of my head, but it was something like if you take an antacids daily for may not be right three years you had something like a seven-fold increased risk of stomach cancer i happen to know a man who died of esophageal yep. cancer yeah um and mm. was popping those purple yep. pills every day yeah yeah and uh i i mean i don't I, that's the first time i heard of it and then i saw that study that yep. came out yeah that yeah. that is in the causal territory straight away but not many of them are so um, you know, back to pure association, not causation. They didn't claim causations. You know, they wouldn't. They were good researchers. Um, the second problem you've then got with these epidemiological studies is that the headlines are the relative risk. The absolute risk is tiny. Mm. You know, I love looking at, sure. at numbers. I, you know, I, I got a scholarship to read maths at Cambridge. I changed to economics, but, you know, the maths <laughs> was always a part of, of what I do. What's the difference between those two? 
Relative risk and absolute risk. Yeah, no, <laughs> relative risk and, and, and absolute risk. So, um, okay, so what they announce in the headline is that, um, you know, the, the 20, let's say the 28% risk. So the people who died during the study, um, you were 28% more likely to die during the study if you were in the lower fat group um, than in the higher fat group. Um, and that sounds really impressive. And mm. if you give that, Asim Malhotra um, does a great, Dr. Asim Malhotra does a great presentation on this where he explains that if you give that statistic, Dr. Malcolm Kendrick does the same. If you give that statistic to a bunch of doctors and say, what do you think it means? They think it means that if you've got 100 people um, 28 more will die in one group than in the other. Right. They just anchor everything to 100 because they hear the word percent. Percent, right. But when you get into the absolute numbers, you suddenly realize that they're absolutely tiny. Mm. So, I mean, probably the best way to give the example would be, um, you know, if you, um, you, you might have a one in 100,000 risk of developing esophageal cancer. Right. And if your risk is 20% higher... In other words, 1.28%. You've now got a 1.2 <laughs> risk in 100,000 yeah. of developing esophageal cancer. And, yeah. and that's the absolute risk. So the relative risk is you've got a 20% difference. Mm. The absolute risk is 1.2 versus 1 in 100,000. Mm. So the absolute risk, everything is about the the denominator, what you're dividing by. Right. So in the pure study, there were over a million person years. It was an average of something like seven years. Um, and they looked at 135,000 people. So they had over a million person years. Mm. And I worked out that the absolute risk, and I think I'm right off the top of my head, was 0.58% um, uh, in any what? one year of dying okay so you can then apply that sort of 28 percent risk and keep the average of 0.58 and it ends up being something like your risk was either 0.62 let's say or 0.53 still statistically insignificant exactly like do you care yeah. if i went to you and said okay you've got a one in 200 chance of developing this and you've got now slightly higher than a 1 in 200 or slightly lower than a 1 in 200, you're still just going to hear 1 in 200 right. and just think, I don't care. Right. You know, I've got a 1 in, I don't know, 100 chance of getting run over in mm. the next 10 years or mm. something. Um, I just don't care. Mm. So Malcolm Kendrick has done a, a blog on this quite recently. If you follow his brilliant series, What Really Causes Heart Disease, I think it's something like part, yeah. part number 42. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it says something like, um, you know, if you, if you put statins up against exercise, exercise is something like 5,400% better for you <laughs> than taking a statin because, of course, as we all know, statins bugger all use yeah. in heart disease. It's, you know, it's going to do far more harm than good. Mm -hmm. um, the very slight anti-inflammatory mechanism that it might have because it's got nothing to do with cholesterol lowering, you know, mm. pales into insignificant next to don't smoke, do move, right. and get some sunshine. Yeah which was the gist of his latest blog. Um, so what the study did conclude, Pure, it basically said we need to revisit current dietary guidelines. Absolutely. I mm. mean, 100%, you cannot disagree with that recommendation. Right. One of the things that I thought might be uh, useful out of the Pure study was the fact that they found no correlation between saturated fat and cardiovascular disease. And if you find no correlation, then that 
means you can infer a lack of causation. Yeah. So for that, you know, the, the, the Pure study really uh, puts the whole uh, saturated fat trial on notice uh, for being pointless. Do you know, I think it was, Dr. if I can get the words right, Dr. Malcolm Kendrick said, association does not prove causation, but lack of association disproves causation. That's right. His exact words. So yes, to that extent, um, it, it actually found quite favorably in terms of saturated fat with the caveats of association and relative risk. Um, but Richard, you're absolutely right. You know, if you can't find that there's a problem, then you certainly can't go around claiming that there is a problem there because is. you can't yeah. find a problem. Yeah. <laughs> and of course, you know, my PhD yeah. looked at the randomized controlled trial evidence against saturated fat and found similarly, there is none. Um, and I looked at the epidemiological yeah. stuff at the time and then looked at the epidemiological stuff available now. You know, there just isn't any. Um, you know, if you, if you want to yeah. watch a half an hour video that basically is all you ever need to watch to say why there is no case against total fat and why there is no case against saturated fat. It's the presentation that I gave at Breckenridge mm -hmm. in 2017. It's openly available on view. I think if you put Breckenridge in, in the search box on my site, you know, let alone the low carb down under on YouTube, you'll find it quite easily. It's 30 minutes and it even goes to the one remaining study that they hang on to, the Hooper Cochrane study of 2015. <laughs> and it then explains why that still doesn't provide evidence against saturated fat, even if it were the one oasis in amongst all the other many studies that find nothing. Even that, you know, it just doesn't stack up. So I feel like I want to dial it back a little bit um, for the listeners and maybe talk just for a few minutes about the difference between what an epidemiological study is and a randomized control trial. Okay. I know an epidemiological study is one that's basically questionnaires, you know. Yeah. How, you know, just tell us what you did or what Food you ate. Food frequency questionnaires. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so, um, I mean, you've got a couple of types of um, epidemiological studies, and they tend to either fall into perspective what we call cohort studies or retrospective cohort studies. Um, so the prospective cohort studies are generally regarded as the most robust. So that's the one when like the nurses health study or the health professionals follow-up study or the European perspective investigation into cancer, the massive studies that are going on around Europe. Um, they gather together a population of people. It can either be a defined population like nurses or health professionals or random people in Europe who have signed up to be monitored in the EPIC study. I'm actually a member of the EPIC study, which oh. is quite interesting. Wow. And I was recruited, yeah. you'll find this interesting, when I was a vegetarian. Huh. So <laughs> back in the, I don't know, late 90s, I think, when I was vegetarian, I got an approach through the Vegetarian Society. They were looking to make sure that they had sufficient vegetarian members because then they could study populations within the population right. um, and make sure. the study even more powerful. So uh, we got a letter saying, would you like to sign up for this study? I thought it would be really interesting, so I did. Um, and basically, you get given a questionnaire at the time, and herein lies the first problem. Um, and one of my blogs has got the questionnaire openly up online so you can see the problem because it says, some of them say, what did you eat yesterday? Which might not be typical. Some of them say, what did you eat last yeah. week? Which you might not be able to remember. Oh, and then man. even worse, some of them will say, what did you eat last year? Good Lord. Um, and then oh, you have to go and see them. Google you know, dietary questionnaire, epidemiological study or something, or find the epic one, EPIC, 
and put it in and it mm. will say, you know, do you have bacon um, less than once a day, more than once a day, less than once a week, never, mm. once in a blue moon, only mm -hmm. when it's Christmas. Um, and then it asks you another, you know, 500 questions like that. Right. Um, do you eat chickpeas? Do you eat right. chickpeas with the wrapper on or chickpeas? With, you know, and it just goes insane. Right. And trust me, you get to some point in the survey when it's just like, I've lost the will. So they then follow you. So they, so they get that data. So they, I didn't go in for a, a, a checkup. Mm -hmm. So I did it all. It was all self-reported. Yeah. So I told them my mm -hmm. gender. I told them my weight. I told them my height. I told them any conditions that I had already diagnosed. Mm -hmm. uh, I told them what I ate, how much I exercised. That's all they wanted to know. Did I smoke? That stuff. Yeah. So then I get a follow-up questionnaire. I've had two in the last 20 years, so probably every 10 years. Hmm. Now, I'm, of course, not veggie now. Mm -hmm. So what happens if, no. if I now develop heart disease, right. do they say that I've developed heart disease because that's associated with my first questionnaire when I was veggie right. or with my most recent questionnaire when I'm not veggie? Mm. I don't know. Right. Um, but they, they just look to see what happens to that population over time. They right. get a ton of data they chuck it into the computer and they look for patterns. Right. And the patterns might be as bizarre as people who exercise also eat chickpeas. Or people who eat ice cream are more likely to drown. Yeah, um, and, and that's what they come up with. And yeah. Harvard have made a business out of it because they continually quiz yeah. the nurses' health study and the health professional study. Mm. And right now, this minute, they are looking for new patterns that will come out in the media mm. in six months' time. So the randomized control trial is very different. The randomized control trial takes a bunch of people and randomly allocates them to either do nothing the control, control group. or to do something right and that's what happened with things like the rose corn oil trial yeah. um, you know arguably the very first dietary fat intervention they actually had three arms so they said there's a control there's a group of mm -hmm. people who are going to have this diet plus corn oil and then there's a group of people who are going to have this diet plus olive oil and we're going to see how they do. And the control part is they get to control the inputs, right? In other the, words, the control, they're control. They're trying to keep unchanged in some ways. So um, y you've got to have something to anchor it to. I mean, if we did a randomized control trial now, and we said, right, you go on a local diet, mm. and Carl is going to go on a low carb diet, and I'm going to go on a vegan diet. Mm. We've changed three things. Right. We we don't know, you know, we've got no sort of anchor. You have to test um, one one in, one thing at a time, in other exactly. words. Exactly. Yeah. So you've got to have a group that you do nothing to. Right. So that you can say, okay, this bunch of people went on a low-carb diet, and this bunch of people carried on with the standard American diet, the Australian diet, the British diet. And it's what they did with the Lancet study just mm. before Christmas, the one that made a lot of headlines where they basically kept the control group on the standard advice for diabetics mm -hmm. that exists in the UK at the moment. And then the intervention group, they put on a very, very low calorie diet, which of course also is a reasonably low carb diet because you're just not eating much of anything. Right. And then they sure. concluded that the low cal moderately low carb group effectively on average put diabetes into remission hmm. so you can make two conclusions from that study you can say 
a locale intervention effectively was able to put type 2 diabetes into remission, you can also conclude our current dietary advice for diabetics is criminal. Yeah. Yes. Because yes, it's not going to help. Absolutely. They didn't note that one, funnily enough, in the conclusion at the end. And has there ever been a, a randomized control trial where after they get through the entire process and they find the results, they re-randomize the same people and go through the entire process again? Okay, yeah, no. So um, the, the best the best way to do one of those, they, these are really powerful studies, um, and you see them a lot on documentaries on TV where they, they can't use too many people, mm. and they need to get a result for the documentary in a short period of time. So it's called a crossover trial. Um, so what would happen is... You know, you could probably even do it with just us three. Mm -hmm. So we could all go on a vegan diet mm -hmm. and see what happened. And then we could cross over and go on an entirely meat diet mm -hmm. and see what happened. Mm -hmm. And what that effectively does is it, it rules out the chance that we just happened to get the people in the intervention group who were going to respond well to that intervention. Right. So if you think of the work that Dave Feldman is doing with cholesterol and right. hyper responders or whatever, you know, you didn't end up with all the Dave Feldmans in one group just by chance, because that can happen. Right. By random chance, that can happen. Unlikely, but it can happen. Mm. Um, and then you do an intervention. And of course, you don't get a clear result because you actually ended up with the wrong people in the wrong group. Yeah. So the crossovers can be really powerful because you can do them with half a dozen people. I wanted to do one. My original PhD idea was actually not looking at the dietary guidelines. It was to do what I was going to call a breakfast experiment, which was to take, you know, maybe you could get away with as few as half a dozen or 10 people and say, okay, you guys for breakfast are going to have let's say 500 calories of pure carbohydrate, which mm. is sucrose. And then mm. you guys are going to have, yeah, yuck. You guys are going to have 500 calories of the closest we can get to with pure protein. So mm. that might be egg whites or white fish or whey powder or whatever. Mm. Nothing else must be as close as you can get to protein. You guys are going to have 500 calories of pure fat. And then see what happens mm. in terms of blood glucose response, insulin response, mm. and whatever. And then just to make sure you haven't lucked out and got you know, people who respond well in each group, you then repeat the experiment with a washout period right. and put the sugar people onto protein and the protein people onto fat yep. and the fat people onto sugar and then do it again. Yep. And then you would be able to say, you'd have really powerful results then to say, um, fat has no impact on blood glucose. Right. Sugar does. Yeah. Protein doesn't have an impact on blood glucose, but it does have an impact on insulin. Mm. Mm. Those are the kind of things that I would expect. But, you should go in open-minded to say, let's see what the evidence tells us, mm. because it might be that fat does have an impact on insulin. Um, particular fats do. You know, you don't know what you're going to find if you go in genuinely doing research. So one of the things that uh, it occurred to us when we first heard about the PURE study, you, you talk about this Bradford Hill standard of causation and the the level of uh, of, of um, of the of the observed effect and and that it really has to be a two hundred plus. And I think Nina mentioned that for pharmaceutical interventions in the U.S., it has to be four to five hundred percent observation before they can start doing randomised controlled clinical trials. But the um, the thing that occurred to me is that for 
20, 30, 40 years, T.H. Chan's school at Harvard, as you say, have been torturing the same data over and over again to pull out these slight associations that are wispy thin and, 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 and really don't meet the Bradford Hill standard. If we, as the low-carb people, were to jump on the pure study and say, ha, see, carbs are bad for you because this uh, associational study with weak inferences uh, was able to show that, we'd be hoist by our own potato, I suspect, because the, you know the, these, uh, these epidemiological studies, by, by, by actually going out and saying, well, yeah, it, sure, this study says that carbs are bad for you, but the association is so small, we're going to reject it outright, even though it 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 meets our our biases. Um, I I suspect that that's a more powerful statement than 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 anything we else we can say about the pure study. You're so right on the double standards. I mean, I, you know, I do think we were very restrained, actually, um, you know, because <laughs> we've got a lot of scientists on our side who know that epidemiology is flawed, um, can't, you know, definitively say anything about causation. We know about how to calculate absolute and relative risks. Um, what I do observe sometimes in studies, um, and I've seen Dr. Asim Malhotra talk about this in some of his presentations as well, is the number of times that you'll see absolute and relative risk used when it suits people mm. if you keep an eye out for it right. you'll find this is so disingenuous so you'll see um you know it, that you might find you know because people are trying to back up their own belief system the whole time support the dietary sure. guidelines support um you know drugs asim has spotted it with some drugs that they'll present the benefit in terms of relative risk mm-hmm. and the side effects in terms of absolute risk oh, now, how, oh. how outrageous is that <laughs> So, you know, classically with statins, they'll say, this is so classic with statins. Look at any statin study. And the headline will be, um, you know, take a statin and, you know, you'll experience a 28% reduction in, you know, cardiovascular incidence or whatever they think it is, you know, over a five-year period, whatever they can stretch out. Um, And, you know, one in 200 people experienced, you know, which is immediately into your absolute risk, Um, you know, experienced, you know, negligible side effects or that kind of thing and you just think guys you know this is so outrageous how do you get away how does that get through peer review if i peer reviewed Mm. that i would red circle that like crazy and say use (laughs) the same one for both i don't mind which you use i'd prefer absolute risk for both but if you want to go relative for both that's fine but just be consistent i have an answer for you to quote tom naughton in the movie fathead follow the money (laughs) yeah you gotta follow the money on this i mean seriously when you see you know how lucrative statins are and then of course these son of statins as malcolm calls them these pcsk nines that disrupt pcs yeah. Yeah, yeah, they disrupt a different pathway in the body. You know, whippy do. We found another natural, you know, God or nature given mechanism, whatever your belief system, you know, that we now think we know better than and we now want to disrupt mm. and impair and intervene with. You know, crikey, God, how many more of these are we going to find right. before we seriously harm human beings even more than we are already? A couple of unique things about the pure study okay. that I think beat other epidemiological studies particularly the stuff that's just coming out of harvard all the time um number one the fact that they did look at all cause mortality which i think has to be the gold standard right. you know if hard endpoints yeah, yeah. And, and and if you're going to say oh you know eat lentils and you'll die less of heart disease then what happened to cancer you know because yeah. if i'm going to die 10 percent right 
less likely from heart disease, but a thousand percent more likely by cancer. I'm sorry, I don't want to eat lentils. That's what I'm concerned about. Yeah, (laughs) I'm I'm concerned about, am I going to die? Or am I not going to die? Right. And yes, you know, I am concerned. Am I going to get cancer or am, am I not going to get cancer? But you've got to put it in the context of you've got to do the mortality first, yeah. which is what the Pure study did. So they did the all-cause mortality and they also then looked at other factors like cardiovascular disease and mm. other you know baddies that you don't want to get. So that was really good. Big plus on that one. And the second one that was really good was obviously the diversity of the populations studied because they were studying across right. five continents. I think it was 18 different countries. Right. You had Middle Eastern countries, African countries, as well as, you know, affluent um, Canada, America kind of countries, uh, different populations in all of those countries. You know, you don't get that with the Harvard stuff that's being churned out. You've either got American nurses, women, or American health professionals, men. Right. Um, it sort or, of rules know, out yeah. any kind of genetic or yeah. environmental ideas. It's so important. You know, I mean, the fact that we can now look at, you know, dietary fat across the board, whether right. you're consuming dietary fat in Africa or dietary fat in China or in Canada, that's really powerful. That's really mm. interesting. Um, you know, I, I might have some notes to hand here, actually, because I just pulled out some interesting things when I looked at the studies. This was obviously one of the things that I did blog on. Um, so, you know, for example, Europe and North America was the region with the most people in the high activity category. So 59 percent. Huh. Wow of people in Europe and North America that were studied were in the high activity category. Contrast that with Malaysia and Southeast Asia was at 30%. I mean, that's half. Hmm. And you might think, oh, Southeast Asia. Yeah, you might think, you know, people will still be doing more farming work, more walking to work. There's much more activity going on in, dare I say, the less healthy, more obese nations of Europe and North America. Um, The... Africa had, of course, the highest percentage of smokers at 30%. Europe and North America had the lowest at an average of 15%. This was my most striking Did that include finding. France? <laughs> Sorry. The French. <laughs> the French smoke yeah, like no, crazy, I, don't I mean, they? yeah, the French do smoke a lot, but, you know, I guess they get averaged out they're by... They're protected by all the saturated fat. Yeah, yeah they're yeah, protected maybe. by saturated fat, but, I mean, across Europe, they get averaged out by Scandinavia, uh, yeah. um, you know, which really right. doesn't smoke very much at all. Britain's right. got a lot better, particularly since the smoking ban. Yeah. Um, you know, yeah. They, 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 they can't, one country can't, yeah, they, they can't bring it down. Anyway, I love this one. The most striking difference was that six. 61% of Europeans and North Americans had education beyond secondary school mm. because we know that there's a big association between the level of someone's education and their health. You know, this is now going into sure. things like health inequalities compared to just 2.6% of Africans, 61 versus 3% wow. in secondary wow. education. So, you know, you look at health inequalities you know we can look in the uk and say we can see our most deprived areas they might be glasgow they might be the welsh valleys they might be the northeast of england and we see Mm -hmm. that they're less educated and they have lower life expectancy they have lower healthy years Mm. lived um they access the healthcare system far more often we know that there's a massive connection between 
health and affluence, privilege, right. um, education, where you were born, how you were born, yeah. opportunities that, that were afforded to you in your first 25 years. But mm. we can now see globally the impact that that developed versus less developed status has for those populations. I, I love that stuff. I mean, there were so many great numbers in that study. So, Zoe, is that relative education? So, I mean, in the case of Wales and Glasgow and, and northeast of, uh, of England, that uh, these, are, these are populations that have less education compared to the rest of the nation that they're in. Yes. But most other things are a like-for-like comparison. But it, it, does that actually, does that actually uh, apply to nations where nobody ha- where 97% of people don't have secondary education? Um, so is it what you're saying that, um, yeah, because one of the, one of the measures of education, they look at sort of, you know, what was the highest education that people attained basically? So was it sort of, you know, PhD, masters, really, really Mm. further education? Was it Mm. degree, which is further education? Was it sort of staying on, um, to do what we call A levels, you know, sort of secondary education? Or do you stop at 16, Mm. um, in the sort of developed nations? So, that's the usual measure in epidemiological studies when they look at, um, you know, let's compare um, the education levels of different people. The, the reason they look at all of this is because they adjust for it. Because, and, and, sure. and this is why. So when you're doing um, the randomized controlled trial, or if you're looking at population data and you're grouping it into, let's say, people who developed heart disease and people who didn't develop heart disease, yeah. then... When you put them all, there's always like table one in every paper. I love table one. Table one is always the (laughs) the characteristics of the population. And you glance across table one and what it tells you is, oh, look, the people who got heart disease smoked more, did less exercise, had a higher BMI, had lower education Mm -hmm. levels, um, you know, tended to be older all these factors. It jumps out at you. It just jumps out at you. I mean, it massively jumps out at you. Mm -hmm. So the challenge then for the researchers, because they know all of those are those confounding variables, they have to adjust for some, for all of them in some way. Um, and I don't know statistically exactly how they do it, but you have to trust that as well as they possibly can, they've ironed out the impact of smoking, drinking, not exercising, having mm. a high BMI, being older and all the rest of it. You have right. to trust that at some level they've ironed all of that out so that when they're showing you the people that ate lentils had 30 percent you know less heart disease or whatever that they have allowed for all of that other stuff right but what they then haven't done in any dietary study is allowed for all the stuff that the person that eats lentils eats Right. Because it then gets too complicated. Sure. So this is what I always say with the fruit and veg studies. So when they come out and say, oh, look, people who eat fruit and veg die less often of cancer. Then you say, okay, so people who eat fruit and veg don't drink Coca-Cola, don't snack on popcorn in the evening. As we all know, um, health is probably more affected by what you don't eat than what you do eat. Exactly. Exactly. So if I see somebody having seven portions of fruit and vegetables a day, that tells me that it's an educated, yummy mummy, probably in Kensington (laughs) and Chelsea. I joked in one blog, you know, they have 
children called Tarquin and Jemima. You know, if, if, I, right. if I then see the group of people who in the past seven days have not eaten a single piece of fruit and veg, mm. I know that they're from the Welsh Valleys or Glasgow. <laughs> and I know that they're yeah. fourth generation unemployed. And I know that they smoke and they don't exercise and they watch Jeremy Carl reality TV all day long. And I have a clear image in my mind of those two people. Yeah. And yet this headline in the newspaper is trying to tell me that the seven fruit and veggie day is what made the difference between sure. the woman in Kensington and the, you know, 60-year-old man in the valleys. I mean, give me a break. It's a lifestyle measure. <laughs> yeah. It's not, you know, yeah. if you really want to test it, you do a randomized control trial. You go into the valleys and you give them all seven pieces of fruit and veg a day and say, change nothing you see else. It changes. Yeah. Change yeah. nothing else. All you do is have the fruit on top of everything else that you're doing that's unhealthy. Right. And then tell me that they're going to die 25% less often of heart disease yeah. in the next five years. No. That's a bit crazy. Yeah. That's a perfect example of using uh, an epidemiological study as a hypothesis generating mm. activity. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, we've got the hypothesis. We, we see that people who eat you know, seven veg or whatever, yeah. uh, are, are more healthy. So now we're going to go back in with this hypothesis. We're going to test it with a randomized clinical trial. Yeah. And that that's the only point where you actually have meaningful, actionable information, yeah. I suspect. Yeah. You uh, were reading from your blog. Can you tell us a bit about your blog online and, and yeah, what we can so find I've up been, there? Yeah, so I've been, gosh, I've been blogging probably since about 2009. Um, and I can't remember exactly when it became weekly. But it just sort of seems to have become weekly and I managed to keep it going even during my PhD, which I look back now and I don't know how I did it yeah. because I'm not working on my <laughs> PhD now and I still don't seem to have enough time to do anywhere near anything that I want to do. Right. Um, I just don't know how I did it. Um, but I blog every week. I try and pick something that's really topical in the news. I get great ideas from my club members. I get ideas from Twitter. Mm -hmm. um, you know, people might say, hey, what do you think of this? Um, sometimes they're interesting. Some just jump out of you. Like the Pure Study is so huge globally. Mm -hmm. you, you're going to do it the next week. Um, the Lancet Type 2 Diabetes in Remission came out just before Christmas. Huge. The Australian Kellogg study that was funded by Kellogg's. Oh, if right. you eat Kellogg's, everything's going to be marvelous and right. all the rest of it. You know, I had to do that one. Oh, the, the phytosterile wheat mix one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All, all of that the, stuff. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, so you basically mm -hmm. take the stuff that people are claiming and pick it apart. I look at it. I love numbers. I love logic. I love dissecting it. I try and do it in a couple of thousand words. I try to make it as readable as possible. It's kind of like, you know, here's the key messages. Mm. Um, here's what they found interesting. Here's what I found interesting, um, which might not be what they found interesting. You know, kind of like <laughs> the type two study. Yes, it tells us you can put it in remission, but it also tells us that what we're doing at the moment is horrific. Right. So we need to change right. what we're doing at the moment. So, you know, I kind of like to think I look at it in, in different ways. Um, you know, there's, there's some people who, who enjoy it and have been enjoying it for, you know, for a while. I guess it's how I became known to, to Professor Tim Noakes because yeah, yeah. he wanted me to take apart that study that was so key in his trial. Um, I just like dissecting things. I've got one of those sort of anal, um, right. maths brains that just sees a number and I just, I, I have to know where it's come from. <laughs> so I don't read the words in the paper. I hardly ever read the words unless I need to find out what they think happened. Yeah. I just go for the tables and I go for the numbers and they tell you everything. 
Um, yeah. I put as much as I can on open view. I'd love to put it all on open view, mm. um, but I'm not a doctor like so many in the low carb field. I'm not a academic. I'm not part of any university anymore. Um, you yeah. know, I, I wasn't a part of a university when I was a student. You know, I was a student. I wasn't a, a you right. know a lecturer or anything. So, um, you know, if you want to put Welsh lamb and welsh free range beef on the table um <laughs> with the frequency that we would like to do you know i i've got to make a living some way sure. um so i've said if i win the lottery i'll put them all on open view but until then i'm sorry um it's it's not a big charge i think it's like a pound a week or something and oh nice it's well worth it yeah absolutely Thank you. Worth i hope it. so i mean i really hope so and mm. and you know people get to um you know make suggestions some of my best studies have come from people saying hey have you seen this one right. um, so there was one just before christmas where somebody wrote to me and said oh, i've seen in fact i think it was an australian dietitian who quoted it in a blog and said oh look you know low carb people die die basically like it, <laughs> it, it came from a 20 hey, everybody dies yeah, everyone dies <laughs> it came from a 2014 study <laughs> where these researchers had claimed an association between low carb diets and high mortality and oh, she Lord. said you know mm. I, I wouldn't mention it because it was a few years ago but this dietitian has basically just glibly put it in her blog with a one-liner of oh look eat low carb and die so she said oh <laughs> please can you you know come back on it so i had to it's like a red rag to a bull i just had to to do it and, and that proved to be really funny um yeah you can usually find something wrong with studies that's what's really interesting as yeah, well right um you know i do peer reviews uh not too much because it takes a lot of time it's a real responsibility and you're um, perfectly willing to uh to be a witness at any doctor's trial who gets uh, sued for uh quote unquote malpractice by recommending a low carb uh diet maybe yeah i probably would be i mean i you know i did it for tim because i love tim and i admire him so much and he was right and it just had to be done yeah, we all do yeah. um mm. would you ever choose to go through that again i don't think tim would ever choose to go through it again i don't think nina teichel's dr karen zinn from new zealand and i we were the three mm. i coined the phrase in an email oh look we're tim's angels like charlie's angels <laughs> yeah. and it just stuck <laughs> and, and forever since then we've we've been known as tim's angels and i used it in a presentation once and i actually put the picture of us up I, like I the charlie's angels yeah. yeah you were there of course yeah, yeah. Well, we, well you have the correct diversity of uh, hair colors so we did <laughs> yeah actually works out quite well yeah 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 fake of course in my case but yeah no, we, 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 we did you're not supposed to mention yeah. that you didn't no, need to I, say I, that. I, I think I said this in the Breckenridge <laughs> thing. Actually, it was it Dolly Parton that said, "I'm not dumb and I'm not blonde." <laughs> Which I was we can all be blonde if we want to be. <laughs> Whatever, I leave it to yeah. my, I leave it to my hairdresser. Well, um, but yeah, I mean, I, I remember on the mornings of I, I was probably in the worst position because I kind of got out there first and I knew I was on after Tim, mm. and we had no idea when they were going to finish with Tim. So you know, I arrived Tuesday morning. You're not needed. Wednesday morning. You're not needed. Thursday morning not needed friday finally got on the stand at about three o'clock in the afternoon so you know you're on day four of complete cortisol burnout right yeah. you know you're you were ready yeah your <laughs> fight and flight is definitely on right in top gear you're ready to <laughs> attack defend do whatever you want to do let me tell you zoe came out fight <laughs> she didn't come out flighting <laughs> yeah but you've got to do it in a nice way as well because you know the panel are judging you so right. you don't want to sure. row you don't want to get angry you can be passionate but you've got to be really calm mm. And they're just trying to wind you up. Sure. 
Um, mm. And, you know, I just didn't get wound up. I was really impressing myself, actually, because I can get wound up. <laughs> yeah. You know, I can get wound up watching England no. and Wales play rugby. <laughs> if, I, I have the same problem. Exactly. The same yeah. problem usually the Wallabies are involved. No, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Well, God, Wales, Australia rugby is even more stressful. But um, and I, I have a problem with the Red Sox. I'm like, you know, oh, different game, different, different game. Don't game. understand well, it. Well, Zoe, it's been such a delight to be here in your home. The beef stew was wonderful, and Thank Andy's you. been great. And and beef it's stew was Andy's. Andy did a good job with the beef stew. Good job on that stew, Bob. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. He's done good. He's laughing in the background. All right. Well, thanks again. And pleasure. Uh, Thank you for having thanks me. Up. It's been a real joy. Thank Absolutely. you. Absolutely. Well, thank you, Zoe Harcomb. That was wonderful. Yeah, thanks, Zoe. Mm. We have to loop back with her. We've got some new uh, laws, regulations, and things happening in in the world of science, and we're going to definitely have her on again to talk about that. Yeah. Well, are you hungry? I'm a little bit hungry. I'm a little peckish. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's time for some recipes. 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 <laughs> Recipes. <laughs> All right, I'm going to go first this week. You go first. So, as you probably know, this is tapas time for us. We're mm. dedicating a year uh, to small plates. Yeah. And I feel like I, I cheated a little bit because what I did is it fits within the tapas sort of flavor profile of Spanish food. But you could easily serve it as a main dish if you just increase the portion, right? It's yeah. lamb with tomatoes, olives, and garlic. Oh, that's actually a good Australia Day fare. Oh, all right. So anything with lamb is good for Australia Day. So yeah, yeah. sure. So Australian tapas. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we'll get to that one. We'll get to that one. Um, anyway, so you start with a boneless leg of lamb, about three pounds. Mm-hmm. You're going to need a lemon because you're going to zest the whole thing and take the juice from half of it. And lemon mm-hmm. juice in this is just ridiculously good yeah um maybe a quarter of a pound of assorted olives maybe Mm -hmm. eight to ten to a dozen grape tomatoes or cherry tomatoes whichever you like Mm -hmm. what about 10 cloves of garlic crushed up you need about four sprigs of rosemary fresh rosemary removed from the stems just the leaves Uh, about a half a cup of olive oil extra virgin of course a half a Mm -hmm. stick of butter which is a quarter cup Mm-hmm. And about two teaspoons of xanthan gum. Now, this is going to make more than just a plate of tapas, isn't it? You're going to make uh, little dishes that you can serve. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. So, you want to dry the lamb thoroughly with paper towels and score the fat in a cross pattern. Mm-hmm. And we're going to use an Instapot or a pressure cooker. Nice. And in the bottom, I'm going to put uh, olive oil and mm-hmm. a teaspoon of salt and a few grinds of black pepper. And you're going to place the lamb in fat side down. Right. Yeah. And then you cover it with all the remaining ingredients. And you sprinkle some more olive oil, salt, and pepper on top. And now you're just going to essentially push the button to turn it on the high <laughs> meat setting. Mm-hmm. To turn it on the meat setting for about 15 minutes. Now, I've talked about this technique before. One of the things with Instapots is the tend to amass liquid when you're cooking meats and things. Yeah. So it's nice to take some of that liquid out um, so that can get a little bit more crisp. So Mm -hmm. you're going to cook it on high for 15 minutes and then release the pressure. 
You strain out the liquid and set it aside. And you're going to cook it for another 45 minutes to an hour on high as well. Mm -hmm. Take the liquid out of there and add that to the pan again. And now you've got this strained liquid in a pan. And you're going to not turn on the heat. You're going to just let it rest. Let it be warm. And sprinkle in the xanthan gum and whisk it in, right? Until it's all right. combined. If it's too hot, it's going to turn into clumps. Mm -hmm. So now you add the butter and you bring it up to a boil while you're whisking. And that, that's going to thicken it right up. Now you just want to nice. remove that from the heat and add salt and pepper to taste if you need any more salt and pepper. Mm -hmm. So now you remove the lamb and let, let that rest, which you probably could have done while you were making the gravy. <laughs> but the key is to cut it in bite-sized chunks. And this is keto tapas, so you want to make sure there's some fat on every bite. Absolutely. Yeah. And now to serve this, just take a little dish and place a bit of the sauce in the bottom of it. Add a few bites of the lamb and some of the olive mixture and serve it immediately. So nice. you just want it in a little ramekin, like, you know, like I did the meatballs or yeah. a small dish. And, you know, it's also really good if you want to have it as an entree, but it's a great starter. The lemon just brings out the flavor and it's, yeah. uh, yeah, delicious. The thing I like about this recipe is that it, you could actually put the chunks in a bag and freeze it with a little bit of that fatty sauce. Yeah. And, uh, you, I, you know, if you, if you had uh, a family of four, for example, you could put a family's worth of tapas for this lamb mm. in a freezer bag, freeze it, and the next time you have uh, tapas and you've got three meals in the tapas and you really think, oh, you know, I could just add one more, just go to the freezer, pull out the lamb, chuck it in the microwave. There you go. You know, reconstitute the sauce and there you go. So, a wonderful meal. Yep. Really So, good. I basically cooked this and since nobody else in my house liked lamb or liked it or wanted to eat it, I got to live on this for a, an entire week. Oh, nice. It was great. <laughs> it was so great. Yeah. Yeah. So, what's your recipe, Richard? So, two weeks ago, I mentioned that I had a churros recipe. Yeah, uh, churros I can't wait. con chocolate. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> instead, I did a roasted almonds. <laughs> yeah, right. So, last week, however, I said I had a churros con chocolate recipe. That's right. But I sort of went with my manchego and jamon and an olive uh, for my tapas. So, we're finally going to get some churros today. Well, actually, no. <laughs> oh. uh, I have another recipe that uh, some of the girls on Facebook have insisted that I do first. So maybe okay. churros for next week. All right. This recipe this week is queso croquetas, which is uh, cheese croquettes uh, or deep fried cheesy balls. Cheesy balls. Now, I want to say, first of all, that a few shows ago, I did ham and cheese croquettes. Yeah. Um, and I wasn't all that thrilled with how they turned out. So I'm definitely going to try yours, which are just cheese. Yeah, they're just cheese. Now, this recipe actually comes from Julie's dad, and he used to be a professional chef. He was a chef at Claridge's, which is a fancy restaurant in London. And what they did with this recipe was they used a bechamel, which is a sauce you make from a roux. So you get flour and butter and you brown the flour in hot uh, frying butter and then you add milk to that and then 
to that recipe, uh, it, that makes it like a milky, creamy sauce. And then to that recipe, they add a lot of cheese until it becomes solid enough to make into these uh, cheesy balls. And then they deep fry them after breading them with uh, breadcrumbs. So that's the recipe. Now, that obviously a whole bunch of things you can't have on keto, can't have flour. You shouldn't yeah. have flour, shouldn't have milk, shouldn't have uh, um, breadcrumbs. But I decided what I would do is I would use my cheese sauce recipe, which uses uh, the magical ingredient of trisodium citrate, yeah, and uh, make up some cheesy balls, and they worked really well. They yeah. look wonderful. So this recipe is queso croquetas, which is uh, deep-fried cheesy balls. <laughs> all right. First of all, I blend up some pork rinds that we're going to use for the breading, and I use roughly 25 grams of pork rinds to make two cheesy balls. Okay. I like the way you say that, by the way. Isn't there a drinking game going on? <laughs> some people listening to this? Every time I say the word balls, they take a shot. <laughs> all right. Let's get him really drunk, Richard. Let's get him balls, 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 balls. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> so, um, so I've got my pork rinds there already for my breading, and uh, I'm going to crack an egg and 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 mix it up, and that egg is going to be used for the wash. So I'm going to make these cheesy balls, and <laughs> then uh, dip them in the egg, and then uh, roll them in the breadcrumbs, and then dip them in the egg again. Yeah. Roll them in the breadcrumbs and chuck them in the deep fryer, and they they're going to they come out really looking good. That anyway. So. Yeah. Um, to make the cheesy balls, I start off with about 75 grams of grated cheese, and this makes two cheesy balls. Okay. And to that 75 grams of grated cheese, I add about a teaspoon of sodium citrate. Now, this yep. is this um, – it's a salt, really, and uh, and it tastes salty. And what it does is it allows cheese to emulsify with water. And yep. so – to that uh, 75 grams of cheese and the sodium citrate, I add 15 mils of boiling water and I throw it in the microwave until it melts, which is roughly 90 seconds. I put it in for a minute, take it out, put a spoon in, mix it around, see if there's any bits that haven't melted, put it in for another 30 seconds. Yeah. Now I take it out and it, now we've, what we've got here is we've got melted cheese and there's a little bit of water floating um, uh, uh, on it and uh, and the sodium tricitrate. Now what we do is we're going to blend it and the sodium tricitrate will enable the cheese to emulsify perfectly throughout the water. Yeah. And what you end up with then after you've microwaved it and then you've blended it is you end up with a fairly solid feeling cheese sauce. Right. And so uh, what I do is I put it in a bit of cling film and throw it in the fridge to let, to let it become more solid and once i can cut it and uh cut it into two portions um then i'm going to form it with my hands into uh into balls and so i use the warmth after i've chilled it in the fridge a bit i use the warmth of my hands to be able to mold the cheesy balls into shape and uh then i put it into a ball mold which is actually a mold used for making uh, ice cubes for whiskey, but it's mm. perfect size. But you don't have to have a if you don't have a ball mold, just put it in a bit of cling film. Sure. Uh, tie the cling film up with a rubber band and hang it, and it'll 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 be perfectly ball shaped. And it's going to go in the freezer for maybe 10, 15 minutes. It's just enough to be able to make sure that you're going to be able to coat it with the breadcrumbs and then deep fry it. And so. Um, yep. When you do that, uh, obviously coating it with bread with the breadcrumbs made from pork rinds. 
Uh, I deep fry it in tallow. Uh, I use a grass-fed tallow that we can just buy from a regular supermarkets here, Great. which is awesome. Great. And uh, so the balls split a little bit where they touch the basket of the fryer. Uh, so I put that bit on the bottom. <laughs> so when I'm plating, I put <laughs> yeah. the, the nice bit on top so they look perfect. Awesome. Um, but a little bit of cheese oozing out of the bottom is just no problem. And so that is my recipe for deep-fried cheesy balls. That's pretty good, man. <laughs> I'm going to have to make those. Yeah. Do you put anything on top, like a little dollop of aioli and a little pepper or something? Or you just uh, uh, you like can actually do that. Yeah, yeah. So what we do sometimes when we do a tapas meal is that we might have a little bowl of mayonnaise on the side, and we'll add a little bit of horseradish to it. Yeah. And the horseradish to the mayonnaise adds a little bit of sort of um, uh, spicy flavor to it that gets to the back of the sinuses, and yeah, that yeah. on the cheese on the cheesy balls is just delicious. So fantastic! Dunk a cheesy ball into some of that. Somebody mayonnaise. has drank a lot of shots <laughs> listening to this, <laughs> and we're sorry. Not Next really. week, I promise some churros. That's what Next you week. said last week, last week, last week. And the week, week before. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the show, I guess, buddy. Yeah, I think it is. Of course, if you have anything you want to tell us, something we said wrong, something you don't agree with, some more research that you found to support or refute anything that we've said, send it by email to dudes at 2ketodudes.com or post it on our website. And you can follow us on Twitter at 2ketodudes, on Instagram at 2ketodudes, and make sure to use the hashtag 2ketodudes. And, of course, if you want to join the free ketogenic forum, it's forum.2keto.com. And if useless swag is your fancy, you know, T-shirts, coffee mugs, and other junk with witty keto sayings on them, head over to gear.2keto.com. And if you want a shot at getting some of that swag for free, join the 2Keto Dudes fan club. You'll be eligible to win something in every show. Go to fanclub.2keto.com. And if you feel like supporting our podcasts and our forums, think about making a pledge on our Patreon page at patreon.2keto.com or just hit the donate button on our website at www.2ketodudes.com or just go to donate.2keto.com You can also see all of our podcasts and other videos on YouTube at youtube.2keto.com And if you haven't already, go leave us a review on iTunes. That's how new people get to know about what we do. 2 Keto Dudes is brought to you by 2 Keto LLC who strives to support the low-carb community with podcasts and other publications. Keep calm and keto on, Richard. Yeah, keep calm and keto on, Carl. All right, and we'll see you next time on Two Keto Dudes. Dudes.